Albert Einstein, Richard Branson, Bill Gates, John F. Kennedy, Tony Robbins, Michael Phelps, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of industries. What else do they have in common? Well, they all have ADHD, but you don't hear much about that, do you? You know what you hear even less about? The successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm an attorney, not a doctor, a lifelong student, not a coach. I'm also the creator of Cortography, a patent-pending system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your superpowers, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest superpowers. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I'm Tracy Atsuka, and welcome to Episode 11 of ADHD for Smartass Women. Today, we're going to be talking about gifted and ADHD. So, have you heard of the term 2E? It stands for twice exceptional, and it refers to individuals who are both gifted and they have a learning, emotional, behavioral, or social challenge. So they're gifted in one or more areas, for example, math and science, but they're challenged in other areas, like they might be dyslexic or autistic or have social issues. As you can imagine, you can be gifted and you can also have ADHD. And, you know, I never thought. I would ever do a podcast on this, but I wanted to do it after I heard Julie Skolnick speak at an online conference on ADHD for women that's hosted every year by Linda Rogley. I just happened to hear her speak, and I was just so fascinated by this topic. I had heard of 2E, and I kind of knew what it was but I really didn't. I just learned so much. And, you know, a lot of these podcasts, they come about as a way to force myself to really think through and apply new information that I learned to my own life. So I'm trying to come to a conclusion on what it is that I actually think or don't think about a specific subject. So I say, you know what, I'm going to do a podcast on it. It's going to force me to do the research. It's going to force me to learn and come to a conclusion on how I feel about that particular issue. And this podcast, it's no exception. So anyway, Julie Skolnick works with gifted and distractible children and adults, and she advises educators and professionals in the state of Maryland, and I think also California, probably more than that, right? Apparently, according to Julie, there is no one definition of giftedness. All states have their own definition. So there's no standard. And so what Julie does is she talks about these three layers of giftedness. Well, she actually talks about that there's a three-layer cake of giftedness. Number one is asynchronous development. So you're gifted in one or more areas, for example, you know, math, artistically, musically, scientifically, but you're delayed in other areas. So there are some things that you can't do that are age appropriate because there may be a learning challenge, or as I said before, there may be a social or emotional delay. The second part to the three-layer cake of giftedness, according to Julie, is perfectionism. So you have this need to control, right? And I'm a recovering perfectionist, but 
I don't think setting very high standards, so perfectionism is all bad, but still, you know, you can have this need to control and make sure that everything is perfect and that can create anxiety and really make you fearful of taking risks. It can also lead to an imposter syndrome. So I need to be perfect so they don't find out that I'm really a fraud and I'm not as smart as they think I am. And so apparently this is something that is part of giftedness as well. So we've got the asynchronous development, we've got the perfectionism. And then the third layer of the cake is intensity or overexcitability. And this comes from the Polish psychologist, oh gosh, I'm going to massacre this person's name, Kazimierz <laughs> Dabrowski. And what this psychologist identified was five areas in which children exhibit intense behaviors. They're also known as overexcitabilities or supersensitivities. And these five areas are psychomotor, sensual, emotional, intellectual, and imaginational. And apparently gifted children tend to have multiple intensities, although one is usually dominant. So I'm going to go through these five overexcitabilities. Okay. The first one that I mentioned was psychomotor, and it's characterized primarily by high levels of en energy. The, so children with this overexcitability, they seem to constantly be on the move. Even as infants, they need less sleep than other children. As adults, they're able to work long hours without tiring. I kind of think I have this one. <laughs> These kids, when they're kids, they need to, to move in order to learn. And I feel like I'm exactly the same way. In order for me to learn, I'm always moving. I actually learn best when I'm working out. Number two, they're active, but they're also capable of focused concentration as long as they're really interested. They're mentally stimulated. And this lack of mental stimulation can, for obvious reasons, be a problem in school, right? If they don't have it, then they're not really interested in school and they don't do particularly well in school. What else is part of this whole psychomotor overexcitability? Rapid speech, impulsive behavior, competitiveness. Compulsive talking, a preference for fast action and sports, physical expression of emotions. So instead of being able to talk about how they're feeling, I think about my son, he may go hit his desk. <laughs> sleeplessness. And I think sleeplessness can be a difficulty falling asleep, waking up during sleep, but also not wanting to go to sleep. The second um, overexcitability is sensual. And this overexcitability involves a heightened awareness of all the five senses. So sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing. And here are some of those traits. There's an appreciation of beauty, whether in writing, music, art, or nature. There's a sensitivity to smells, tastes, or textures of food. Sensitivity to pollution tactile sensitivity. So they really care about how certain fabrics feel, you know, clothing, how they're put together, whether there are seams, tags. The third um, um, overexcitability is emotional. And some of the traits of emotional overexcitability are an extreme or extremes of emotion, anxiety, concern for others, a heightened sense of right and wrong or, you know, justice and hypocrisy interpersonal intuition. So they can walk into a room and nobody has to say anything, but they can just feel the energy. They know what's going on. 
people with emotional overexcitability, they also, they can get attached to people and places and things like they can get attached to stuff because I think it's because there's emotion in that because memories are attached to, you know, people, places, and things. They have strong memory of feelings. They have problems adjusting to change. There's a need for security and there's a physical response to emotion. So when I think about my son, I remember that, you know, in fourth grade, he just started to have a lot of stomach problems that we later discovered were a result of anxiety. The fourth overexcitability is intellectual overexcitability. And this is probably the one that most of us think about when we think about gifted children. So it's characterized by activities of the mind. So these kids seem to be thinking all the time and they want answers to really deep questions. So the traits are deep curiosity, a love of knowledge and learning, a love of problem solving, avid reading, asking probing questions, analytical and independent thinking, and then concentration. They are able to maintain intellectual effort. The last overexcitability is imaginational. And the primary sign of this intensity is vivid imagination. These kids, they can visualize the worst possibility in every situation. And it can keep them from taking chances or getting involved in new situations. You may notice that your child exhibits vivid dreams, a fear of the unknown, a good sense of humor, a love of poetry, music, and drama, a love of fantasy, daydreaming. Now, Dubrovsky was talking about kids, but clearly all these overexcitabilities, they can apply to, you know, adults, right? Adult women like us as well. And, you know, it's interesting. So my son had his 17th birthday yesterday, and all he wanted to do was go to this specific Japanese restaurant in our area called Hana. It's a really good Japanese restaurant. Specifically, though, what Marcus wanted is he wanted to try the Japanese Wagyu which is, and he wanted the A5 one, which was a, I guess it's the the highest quality of this particular Wagyu, which is beef. It's a certain way that Japanese, you know, the Japanese prepare their beef. And so Marcus wanted to try the best quality Wagyu that he could find. He's, he's a Japanophile. Anyway, as we were sitting there at this restaurant, I thought, you know what? This may be the perfect example to pull out my list of overexcitabilities because I knew what I thought as it related to my son, but I wanted to know what he thought as well. Like I've always known that Marcus is smart, you know? He's just so much wiser than most kids his age, and he's certainly wiser than I was at my age. But he's wise regarding what's going on in the world and how he makes connections, you know, interpersonally and intrapersonally too. Like he can just see how things come together. And from the time he was in fourth grade, teachers have remarked about how bright he is, but they've also remarked at how variable his attention is, right? And so he was recently retested. We took him this time to take the Woodcock-Johnson test, which I think was so much better. And I wish I could remember what the test was that he took before. But the Woodcock-Johnson, to me, that's the standard when you're testing for ADHD. And if I were to ever recommend any test for ADHD, it would be this one. It was just so much more comprehensive. And so what we noticed in this test is Marcus has some really big gaps around auditory processing. He has issues with phonetics, pronouncing words. So he just kind of makes them up at times. So I guess with his issue, what he has to do is he has to memorize the words. He cannot phonetically like sound them out, right? And um, he struggles with visual spatial abilities. In fact, the first psychologist who tested him when he was in 
I think he was in sixth grade or going into seventh grade at the time, basically said, okay, you are not going to be an architect, right? So because of you know, these big gaps in his, in his testing, they couldn't test his IQ. But what we noticed in areas like his processing speeds, literally everywhere, he was off the charts. And usually processing speeds is where those of us with ADHD suffer, right? It's why we get extra time on tests because it just takes us longer to get through things. Now, what Marcus has often said to us is that is the last thing I need is more time. He blows through everything. What Marcus needs is really to slow down. And so I've often, like, I've wondered about that. But anyway, I had never thought of Marcus as gifted. And it's not because I didn't think he was really smart, but it was because, number one, he was so variable in school and also because he's so good socially. Like he wins people. He knows people. So getting back to my story, so my husband and I are sitting in this Japanese restaurant. Marcus is enjoying his A5 Wagyu beef. And I thought, you know what? This is the perfect time to kind of approach him about these various excitabilities. And I wanted to see what did he think he had? Did he think he had any of these traits? And so I asked him and we sat down, we made a list. And what he discovered is he believed that he had all of the psychomotor traits. He had almost all of the imaginational and sensual traits, and he had more than 50% of the emotional intellectual traits. And that really got me to think about what is ADHD and how does it relate to giftedness? And what really does it mean to be smart? Like what is intelligence? What is it even, you know? Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. My son is bored, sitting in a chair, listening to his teacher's talk. He can focus on so many things at once. So who really has the deficit of attention? Is it the kid who can focus on many things at once? Or is it the kid who really only focuses at one thing on one thing at a time? I don't know. But what I discovered about giftedness is apparently you can do poorly in school and still be gifted. And I found a number of really interesting resources that I'm going to post in the show notes, but this one floored me. There is actually an association called the Association for the Education of Gifted Underachieving Students. It's called AEGUS. I guess that's the acronym, A-E-G-U-S. The other thing I learned about giftedness is for a gifted person to succeed, they have to do work that's interesting and meaningful, and they don't like rules that don't make sense to them. So I took all these gifted qualities, right? The asynchronous development, the perfectionism, the imposter syndrome, the need to move, the compulsive talking, the imaginational excitability, which sounds like creativity to me, the justice sensitivity, the interpersonal intuition, the deep curiosity, the problem solving, the independent thinking, the sense of humor, the daydreaming. And now then, this need to do work that is interesting and meaningful, and the fact that you can't deal with a bunch of useless rules. And I'm thinking, well, what does that sound a lot like? Yeah, it sounds a lot like ADHD, doesn't it? And you're right, because what Julie Skolnick, Dabrowski, and Susan Baum, who's another expert in this field of of giftedness taught me is that apparently ADHD and giftedness can look identical. 
And I've wondered about this, you know, with my son for a while now. And so the next thought that I had was then I worried about medication. Now, my son isn't on medication. So I'm thinking about just kids with ADHD who have my son's symptoms generally. And again, I am not against medication as long as it's not the first line of defense and as long as it's not the only thing that you do. I think where a lot of kids and adults really struggle is that, you know, they get this ADHD diagnosis and right away the only thing that's thrown at them is a script, a prescription for, you know, a stimulant for for medication. But you don't do anything else. And I just don't think that's enough. And I heard John Rady, you'll recognize the name. I did a a podcast last week, or actually it launched this week about exercise and ADHD. John Rady wrote the book and it's called Spark. And he also co-wrote Driven to Distraction. And so I heard him speak about exercise um, a couple days ago. And it really, really hit home what he said. Medication, he said, was vastly undersold in his mind because medicine can do so much for so many people with ADHD, and it is relatively safe. The other thing I should say about John Rady is he also has ADHD. So what he says always means so much more to me. And I have personally seen lives literally change overnight with medication. I mean, it's been that... Oh gosh, what is the word? I'm on an ADHD uh, brain blip here. It's it's that significant what medication can do. What I have seen happen to people with ADHD where medication works for them. What John Rady said is that he feels that the damage done to the brain by stress, failure, humiliation, and self-concept, you know, a negative self-concept, this feeling that you're a failure and you're making it a character issue, it's a lot worse than anything that a stimulant medication could ever do. And if you think about it, I mean, you know that you're bright and you know that you're not living to your, your potential, right? So what a lot of these ADHD people do then is they self-medicate. They go to alcohol, they go to recreational drugs, they go to coffee, they go to Red Bull. And medication is really different. It's just much better for those of us that suffer with ADHD. So please understand that I am not saying that I'm against medication, okay? I'm just not for it as a first line of defense. And I do believe that it is not the only thing that you should do. And I just know this from personal experience. This is where I have come to this decision. But this is my question. Are we medicating these bright kids so they sit down, they shut up, they don't ask questions, they don't move, just so they can fit into an environment, schools, where frankly they're bored out of their gourd because they're not interested and they're not challenged. And to what extent is the traditional school environment creating these ADHD-like behaviors for these bright kids? I mean, couldn't we very well make a case for the fact that perhaps these kids are brighter than the kids that can sit down and follow the rules and pay attention and never ask questions and don't think, like they don't have that second and third level thinking? Why can't schools be held to a higher standard to provide educational options for these bright kids who have ADHD? And why don't schools and educators have the training and the knowledge to provide these educational solutions for these kids with learning and attention difficulties? Like, we don't really know what we're dealing with here in my mind. Like, is it a neurological problem that affects learning? 
Or is it just the environment? Are these kids just really bored and not challenged? Or is it a combination of both of these things? You know, I've said this for years because it has been my experience with my smart, capable son. Smart kids with ADHD are the ones that fall through our educational cracks. Anyway, you know, in my experience, teachers can tell that they're smart in the classroom and they can tell that they're capable of learning, but these kids are disorganized. They forget to turn in homework. They often seem to not even be able to do homework like my son. I mean, he literally cannot study for more than 20 minutes for a test. So the teachers and parents, right, we think, oh my gosh, this child is capable, but they won't do it. So it must be that they're just lazy. You know, ADHD, it's not new. It has literally been cited in psychiatric literature as minimal brain damage (laughs) since the mid-1800s. And that's right around when our school system came into existence. The other thing that I learned is Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences. And I've heard of this before, but I, I didn't really apply it to this whole giftedness So there are actually eight intellectual domains, according to Gardner. There's verbal, there's logical, mathematical, spatial, kinesthetic, the one that a lot of ADHD people have, right? We need to move in order to learn. There's musical, there's naturalistic, interpersonal, and intrapersonal. So interpersonal is how you relate with others. Intrapersonal is being really self-aware and understanding why you do what it is that you do. Now, school is basically about verbal and logical mathematical abilities. So kids who aren't achieving in school, they're not achieving in the verbal and logical mathematical areas or domains, may have other exceptional abilities in the one of the other six or more intellectual domains. So Maybe ADHD is connected to specific intelligences. Anyway, so I come down to or come out to, okay, what do I do? Like, what do I do with a son like Marcus? I'm going to give you some ideas. A lot of them I got from Susan Baum. And again, I'm going to have all these links in the show notes, but this is so the timing is so perfect because I just got a text from Marcus's Spanish teacher that ugh, Tracy. He's really, really gifted in Spanish. You know, he has really good pronunciation. He really understands languages. He has an aptitude for languages, but he's screwing around. And so I asked my son, what's going on? And he said, I'm bored. I'm not challenged. And there's a bunch of other kids there who are native Spanish speakers. And so the three of us just speak in Spanish and kind of screw around. (laughs) And so I was thinking, okay, well, so what do we do? The first thing I think that we need to do, and I pulled this from Susan Baum, is we need to ask, are these kids hyperactive, impulsive, and unable to focus everywhere? You know, it's not uncommon that some kids are bored because they're not being challenged. And my son is certainly one of them. I mean, he flat out tells me when I ask him, okay, why are you not applying yourself in Spanish? Why are you screwing around? I'm bored and it's not challenging. And then he said, like, why can't we just do field trips? You know, we live in California. There are tons of places where there are predominantly you know, there are people who speak predominantly Spanish. Why can't we do field trips and go learn out there like in the real world? Good question, isn't it? So number two, 
Using Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences, can educators teach using other intelligences? For example, for our kinesthetic learners like Marcus and a lot of um, kids and um, adults with ADHD, you know, can we do things to teach where the kids are able to move around? We talked a lot about that in my podcast this week related to exercise, right? Can we also teach to interest? I mean, this is a big thing with ADHD, and I'm constantly going into Marcus's school and saying, you know, asking, okay, this is what Marcus is interested. How can we teach English around these interests? And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. Number three, look at students' behavior in different learning environments to estimate the optimal conditions for learning. So when Marcus was screwing around in math, I asked him, what's going on in math? And he said, you know what? It's the end of the day. I am so burnt out. I am so checked out. That is the last thing that I want to do. Now, keep in mind, Marcus's testing scores in math are really high. Most of them are in the 98th percentile. Some of them are in the 98th percentile. So he is clearly smart and capable in math. Number four, observe parent-child and teacher-child interactions to see if limits are set and the student can self-regulate. So Marcus has told me himself, if a teacher can't control the classroom, he's going to take advantage. I know, that's terrible. But again, he's really self-aware. He knows what helps him to focus and maintain, you know, self-control, and he knows when he goes off the rails. And one of the things he's told me is, look, I don't want my teacher to be my friend. I want a teacher that I respect. Flat out said that. Number five, observe the child to decide to what degree the student's creativity is appreciated, reinforced, or allowed expression. And I'm going to combine that with number six. Is there any effort to develop the student's gifts or talents? How does the student behave during these activities? And so I want to tell you about Marcus's English teacher. As you can tell, he has struggled at times in every single subject, just about. I think history and social studies is the only one that he hasn't. But I also think that teacher that he's got right now is so on point. And Marcus has said, I respect him so much that even when he's boring, I am going to bust my hump to do as as best as I can for him. But anyway, as far as um, looking at how to build or reinforce a child's creativity and appreciate it and also develop a student's gifts or talents while teaching. So Marcus was struggling in English. He just really hated it. What they were doing was reading primarily fiction, I think all fiction, and it was just subjects he just did not care about. So I went to his teacher and I told her, okay, my son is interested in anything around music, specifically um, hip hop and rap. Um, he's interested in social and political justice. He's interested in prison reform, you know, anything along those lines. He is a social justice kid. And so what did this teacher do? She completely revamped the curriculum because she noticed that she was losing a lot of the boys. She completely revamped the curriculum. They are now watching a documentary in class, and it, it was on Netflix, and it's it's a series, and it's a documentary on looking at the police and looking at gang activity and how similar they are. 
And it's all about social and political justice, right? So the kids are really into this. It's affected their writing. It's affected their participation. And all, you know, positively, it's affected their participation. They're having really good conversations. And what I love about this school is that they can do these things. They're willing to look at these things instead of just teaching to, you know, the textbook. So that really worked not only for Marcus, but the other boys that um, this teacher felt like she was kind of losing in the classroom. Okay, number seven, assess the student's instructional level and evaluate curricular pacing. So is the child bored? Clearly, my son was in a Spanish class that it's not challenging, and so he's looking for trouble. He's looking for something that interests him, right? Number eight, and this is something that I'm adding, especially after my podcast on exercise and how important it is to improve focus and aid in learning, I'm going to bring a couple jump ropes to school next week. And what I'm going to tell the teachers or the mentors is, look, if Marcus is being a problem in school, you know, he's a jokester. He's got a really good sense of humor. He's irreverent. He's funny. He can get all the kids moving in the wrong direction. So I'm going to tell them to just tell him to go into a separate classroom and jump rope for five minutes. He needs to get his heart rate up. And then that can hopefully improve his focus and aid in learning. I will report back to tell you if that works, because I think it's something that they should try with all of the kids. And I love that he goes to a school that I can make those kinds of suggestions, and I believe that they will try them. So finally, you know, there's a lot of talk on if people with ADHD are just smarter. And so is there a correlation between high intelligence and ADHD? Now, generally, all the research seems to indicate that this, this it's not true, right? That ADHD has nothing to do with how smart a person is. You know, there are some individuals with ADHD that are super smart and they can perform really well on IQ tests and many score in the average range. And then some, they're just lower. They score lower. Like all things ADHD and just like symptoms, there's a continuum, right? Every ADHD brain is different. But then I have to ask, so what's smart? Do numbers on an IQ test even mean that you're smart? And I point you to Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences. And I have to say that I have known brilliant people with ADHD who didn't do well in school, but I have yet to come across someone with ADHD who wasn't truly brilliant in some aspect of life, whether that was math, science, interpersonal communication, music, art, design, filmmaking, you name it. ADHD people have this spark, this energy. They always seem to be learning this intensity, if you will. And I guess that that's become my mission in life, to help those people figure out where that brilliance lives. And in true ADHD form, I have just noticed that it starts with interest. So that's what I have to say about ADHD and being gifted or how the two may or may not relate. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. If you like what you're hearing, I would so appreciate if you'd drop us a review. If you'd like to know more about me, 
our patent pending cartography system, or if you have a comment, a guest you'd like me to interview, or a topic idea for this podcast, feel free to contact me as well. If you go to my website at tracyoutsuka.com and click on podcast in the navigation bar, you're going to see a microphone to your right where you can leave me an audio message. You can also reach out to me at tracy at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. If you liked what you heard, we sure would appreciate a review. And not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, well, that's also the name of our free Facebook group. Go look it up. We're a totally smart-ass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. We'd love to have you join us. You can also find all my details over at tracyoutsuka.com. Don't forget, I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week. 